Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. While most novels are written by a single author, that doesn't mean the process is absent from other creative voices. Editors are one of the most important collaborators for authors. On this episode, I talk with Elizabeth Schaefer, an editor at Penguin Random House. There, she works on books for some of the world's biggest brands, including Star Wars and Minecraft. We discuss what it's like working with established franchises, the importance of building trust with an author, and why time is your most precious currency. If you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. And I heard if you share with two friends, Han Solo himself will show up and give you a tour of the Millennium Falcon. But even if that's not true, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. It's great to talk with you. Hi, John. It's great to be here. So something I've learned as an author is that there are a lot of different types of editors. Can you describe some of the different parts of that process and which one do you tend to focus on? Oh, wow, that's an interesting question. So uh, I'm an editor at um, Penguin Random House, and I work specifically on licensed publishing. So that's books that are based on pre-existing movies or TV shows or any of your kind of favorite franchises. And so that ends up being pretty different from what I think most people think of when they hear of an editor who's um, a developmental editor they're getting manuscripts submitted to them and they're reading through to find the cream of the crop that they want to publish um, and working with that author to make the manuscript the best version of the story that they, they can have. For licensed publishing, it's um, a little bit of a flip-flop of that pattern where instead of authors coming to me, uh, I tend to reach out to authors that I'll, I'll work with a Lucasfilm or a a critical role, I guess, a Minecraft and um, figure out the story that they want to tell. And then I'll reach out to an author to connect them and then help them write their story. And so when you work with the author specifically, are then you coordinating between the companies such as like a Lucasfilm or you mentioned Minecraft? Are you coordinating to have some consistency there? Or are you also... Uh, making edits to the story so the story's better? Oh, definitely edits to the story. I th- one of my favorite things about uh, licensed editing is I feel like you get to be um, a little bit more creative and a little more hands-on than you might in other editorial areas uh, because part of the point of your job is to be an expert on the storytelling for that brand. So you get to really help the author create the ideas for in the first place instead of coming to it later in the process and helping them polish what already exists. It probably gives some relief to the writer as well, because if they're, let's say they enjoy Star Wars, but they haven't watched every single episode of like every <laughs> Clone Wars or, or you know, these new Mandalorian shows, 
uh, they might not know that this type of alien is inconsistent with their idea, but you might be able to help point them in a better direction. Is that sort of some of Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's uh, often times where someone will submit a manuscript and you'll be reading through a paragraph and then I'll just have brackets and be like, uh, alien race insert here yeah. <laughs> or Star Wars version of too many cooks goes here. And then you can help them like figure out what the best canon answer would be to that. That's funny. And it's funny you actually mentioned the brackets because I, I just so I know the brackets is like a thing that people do and it must just be it's helpful, but also like logical, because when I started writing, I started realizing, oh, if I put things in brackets like that, I can come back later to it. And I did brackets and not parentheses because parentheses usually not in fiction, but you could be using parentheses for like a different purpose. So I just started using brackets. And then it was like months after this, I see that this is a widespread author like thing to do uh, in like a recommended practice. And I was like, oh, this is funny because I kind of ended up there naturally. It reminds me of like even stuff on a bigger scale, like uh, The Hero's Journey or something like that. I've noticed that some, some of those things come out naturally in writing, even though it's like recommended too. Do you find natural things in your editing that uh, you find yourself doing that just makes a lot of sense? And then you find out later that it's, oh, that's all part of the process. Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I immediately thought of kind of the mirror that I uh, naturally do to the brackets because, you know, the author has, has taken up that control F space is I definitely, if I read something that I'm like, I know this isn't right, but I can't put my finger on why right now. I'll just do a comment with a triple asterisk to, to mark out a, um, I need to come back to this later. I need to be able to control F this, but just don't quite have my thought together quite yet. Oh, that's cool. So, so, so you're like, oh, wait, this is already this type of thing I can't use. So I have to kind of pick my own thing that I can search for later. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it actually, so I had always put in the brackets as a, oh, when I read it next, I'll come to it. But then that was actually something too that I've seen more recently because other people use it. I was like, wait, I can be control effing this to look it up whenever I want to. What a much more efficient way that I don't leave it over when I'm sending it to a beta reader or an editor or something like that. I do not know how writers worked before word processors. There's just so much of my job that would take so much longer if I could didn't have a searchable document or you know track changes like mailing manuscripts back and forth with markups on yeah, right. them wild. Someone I interviewed actually writes his first drafts by hand, so I thought that was remarkable. And my I got wow. like a physical cramp as he's like telling me this. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever works for folks, uh, support that. But that uh, that is a, a commitment. Well, I've also found so so I won't go that far to to write everything out by hand. But I have found that if I'm handwriting notes or something like that, it can put me in a different brain space. So hmm. so I don't know if you have certain tools that you use if you need to kind of change your way of thinking when you're doing an edit. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know about tools specifically, but I definitely am a um, diehard of having an editing playlist. Um, definitely putting on music that I think will match the mood of the book absolutely underscores. Not only is it just more pleasurable to do it that way, but it kind of always reminds you, what is the tone of this book that I'm going for? And when what you're reading starts to stray from what you're listening to, it's kind of this really subtle way of um, reminding yourself, like, mm, maybe this needs a little bit of tweaking. 
how literal do you go with this? If it's a Star Wars thing, are you having John Williams score your editing process often? Well, Star Wars, you're lucky because you have, you know, literal genius John Williams to to back you up. But for for other brands, it's much less literal. And um, I'll just kind of pick a playlist based on keywords from from the book that I think will be appropriate. So when you're working with an author, how do you balance making suggestions while still keeping the author's voice and their goals intact? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's parts of being an editor that are not unlike being a therapist. I mean, we're all just such fragile artists, right? And somebody has trusted you with hours of their life, with very personal, emotional words, and being able to identify what will genuinely make the story better is one thing, but also being able to communicate that in a way that the author will be receptive to it is also a very important skill set in, in being an author. So I, I really love working on books with authors that I've had the opportunity to work on stuff with them before. Because you just develop this shorthand, you you know what their strengths are, you know what their weaknesses are, and that relationship, I think, makes for an even better book. And for the other authors who are listening to this show, what are good practices for the author to get the most out of that experience? I, I know from my personal experience, just doing my best to listen to everything that's being said, whether I might agree with it or not, and really take it to heart and consider it goes a long way. Mm. So that's kind of the obvious one that comes to mind. But I don't know if you've noticed other things that that just seem really helpful for the author to get the most out of the experience. Time. Time is really helpful in that I I always write up an edit letter to go to the author first. And I say at the top and then repeat at the bottom of that letter, like, take a look at all this and don't write back to me right away. Take a day, take a week, think about what this is. Give yourself space between you and this, again, really personal thing that you've written so that you can see it with fresh eyes. And then let's have a conversation about it. Because so often, like the first time you read something, you'll get defensive or you'll say, like, no, 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 that doesn't work because of X, Y, Z reasons. But if you give yourself time to think about it, you'll either see that, like, oh, that maybe this makes sense or it will spark an alternative idea that um, is better than what you originally had and what the editor is suggesting. Yeah, I even noticed that in self-editing. If I give myself some time and then come back to it, I'll be less attached to things. But then also, like you said, sometimes I think, oh, this needs to be changed because it's not working. But I think of all the other things it affects and then it kind of gets overwhelming. Yeah. But like you said, it's like often there's there's another solution out there that you need that time to develop. And I think kind of any sort of art, what's it, what's it from? I think it's like Toy Story where the, the guy's like working on Woody and he's like, you can't rush art. Like I always <laughs> yes. think about that. I always think about that when I'm, um, you know, needing to take some time away from a manuscript after it's finished or just like think about, oh my goodness, I have to go through this whole book again. Uh, it's There's other things I can work on in the meantime and come back to it. But overall, letting things breathe is helpful. Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of having multiple projects going at the same time, uh, especially projects that are wildly different in tone or um, content because it just, it helps like a, like a, clen- uh, 
palette cleanser. Um, it helps you go back and forth between those projects and, and really sparks better ideas. What's the first thing that you do when you get a manuscript? Do you just read it straight through or do you, do you work on it as you go? I would imagine everyone's process is a little bit different there. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, we've just been talking about how important time is for creativity, but in licensed publishing, you're so often really racing to hit a specific date because that's when the film comes out or that's when the new season premiere is. So you don't always get that luxury of time. But um, I find it's really important to mark out a giant block of time and say, I'm, I'm not accepting any meetings during this time. Please don't DM me. Um, I need to read this through in one sitting to really get the full um, picture of this book in my head so that I can start playing around with what pieces are and aren't working. And how did you first become interested in pursuing being an editor? Were you always interested in reading and well, it's a tale, a tale as old as time, John, when you go to college and you get an English degree and you're like, well, I like books. Uh, what's the thing <laughs> I can do that makes money making books? Um, but I was really lucky um, that I got an internship my junior year of college working uh, as an editorial intern at a publisher and had that moment of, oh, not only am I good at this, but I really love doing it. This, this is the job for me. Um, so just having that that hands-on experience of being to able to actually do the job was incredibly important for me. What was it that stuck out to you? You mentioned that you felt like you were really good at it, but also that you liked it. What did you feel specifically you were good at and what specifically did you like about it? Yeah, there's no better feeling than reading a story and knowing I know exactly what would make this better. And there's no more terrifying feeling than when you read a manuscript and you think, oh, this isn't working and I'm not quite sure how to fix it. <laughs> um, but that was that was early on for me, just that creative thrill of um, it's like solving a puzzle of um, being able to put things together. And then it's just this really, again, if you have a healthy relationship with your author, this kind of joyful communal experience of talking through the notes and getting really excited as you bounce ideas off of each other. And then the author has to go back and do the hard part. You just be like, mm, this is how to make it better. Now go spend hours <laughs> doing that. Bye. <laughs> yeah, it is easier to uh, to kind of dictate the path that you should take. Oh, go climb that mountain. You know, if you take the longer <laughs> way up, I, you'll get a better view. Okay, have fun. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Exactly. Do you find yourself because of that trying to look for ways that seem practical rather than maybe some like I would imagine sometimes there's like, oh, a best case scenario that might take you five years and then a pretty good scenario that might take you five weeks. Mm, absolutely. There's a, again, the, with the timelines and license publishing, there's absolutely triage that happens when um, I often formulate my um, edit letters as here are the major things that are just going to keep this book from working if they are not addressed. And then here are some nice to have things that if this speaks to you and you have the time, let's try tightening these things up. Yeah, I would imagine that would be just thinking about kind of where I'm at now in the editing process and all of this. It's like, that's the exact kind of thing that I would hope for too, because at some point it's like, okay, I can bend over backwards and feel like I never want to write a book again after I... <laughs> do too much editing or I can do like just the right amount where you know a book that is hopefully already on a good track can be just that much better and have that much better of a chance at success 
Mm-hmm. And you can just get in your own head too. If you over and over and over edit things, um, you can mm-hmm. end up kind of taking the magic out by by worrying too much, or just wasting time. Like, oh, this sentence sounds better this way, and then oh, you know, I think it sounds better this way, and then going back uh, into your like Scrivener has like screenshots of what what you've had in the past and realizing oh literally that's how i had it before and i'll just change it (laughs) back and forth at uh you know infinity but so going back to the the fact that you're working with these big brands like you know star wars minecraft do you ever feel just a lot of pressure in working with these brands that are kind of bigger than life almost not really um, I would just feel so arrogant to say, um, if, if I, if there's any pressure, I feel it's because, um, so often the authors that I work with are huge fans of the, the brand that they're working on, you know, especially in the, in the case of star Wars. And so I do feel a pressure to make sure they have a really positive experience because writing a book is hard and having a bunch of people oversee your writing to make sure it's fitting in with the other things they're doing on their brand. It can be demoralizing at time when you come up with this really great idea that you love and then through no fault of your own, like it has to be changed. And so if there's any pressure there, it's yeah, making sure that people who love a movie or TV show still love that movie or TV show when they come out the other side. And I don't think it's arrogant for you to not have that pressure on the, because it's almost like you can't have it, right? Because let's say you were a new actor and you felt this unbelievable pressure because I don't know, you, you're you in a movie with Tom Hanks and you're like, wow, it's Tom Hanks. And like, you can be like that for a day, but you can't be like that for every scene you have with Tom Hanks. Mm. You'll do a terrible job, you know? <laughs> so it's like, you have to be able to, to focus on the work in any case that might have a, a scenario where you feel like you're in this larger than life role. Absolutely. I mean, you got you want to take responsibility because there's a lot of readers who they have put so much time and energy and love into um, the franchise you're working on. And you want to be respectful of that, you know, commitment that they've made to you. But also you can't get in your own head of worrying about what fans are going to think. And all this seems like it's almost even a step outside of that realm of editing, right? Like it's like there's the the meat of the work and then there's maybe some other things that you're balancing on top of that. With your current role, how much of your day-to-day work is specifically editing and how much is it this other stuff that's a, that it's like <laughs> these extra things that might not be in the job description that just kind of come at you? Oh, uh, almost none of my day-to-day is editing. Uh, I work on... Um, as the editor of note on probably eight books a year. Um, so if you think about that time-wise, if you're reading that manuscript, you know, four or five times, eight books, that's not actually a lot of hours. So most of the job is about this coordination between you and the franchise owners or coordinating with marketing and publicity to make sure the author interviews are going well or developing the cover with the art team or um, going to the copy editor and making sure that they have the brand sheet and that Kashyyyk has three Ys in it, Um, that sort of thing. Like I uh, often compare the role of the editor to a director of the film where yeah you're on set doing things but you're also liaising with just every single department that touches a book 
And is that unique, do you think, to your specific role? Or are a lot of editors, especially thinking of ones that are not as much of like a freelance editor that, that might be more just strictly editing, but thinking about people at a traditional publishing house, is that normal or is that abnormal? I think that's that's pretty common. Uh, you know, for a, a traditional editor, some of that time you would be spending it doing more reading because you're reading a bunch of submissions. And that is such a, a time sink because you have to go through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts a year to find the very best ones that you want to um, work on. But again, the editing on the books that you've actually purchased and are going to publish is a pretty small fraction of the job. That's interesting. Okay. So, so this is all kind of the world of traditional publishing that, that I'm just starting to get a little more of a glimpse of, but so when someone talks about like a acquisitions editor, that editor ends up being often the same editor that works with the author. Yeah. Um, so acquisitions editor is in a lot of ways, uh, term that's mostly outdated at this point like in in the olden madman days of publishing you it would be more frequently that the head honcho of a group would be the acquisitions editor and they might be moving and shaking and making the relationships and buying manuscripts and then they would pass that manuscript off to someone else on the team as the developmental developmental editor um, and that is much, much less common now, um, pretty much these days um, because of the, I think, very important relationship between an editor and an author. The uh, editor who acquires the manuscript is also the developmental editor because the author is choosing the person that they want to be working with. And the same in the same way, the editor is choosing the author they want to be working with. So this is another good reason to even maybe hire an editor before someone is going to submission because if they can get that if they can get their work to a point where the editor's looking at it and thinking, "Wow, there's just only a little bit more to do to make this really stellar." That gives you a better chance than I I like using analogies I came up with earlier in the show, but then they they slowly start to not fit, but I was thinking <laughs> about like, "Oh, like I'm going to have to direct that guy to climb Mount Everest and why would I do that when I can, you know, this other guy's already climbed it and he just needs like five more steps. I've got Sir Edmund Hillary right here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think the most polished you can have your manuscript when you're on submission, because I, again, I, I have so much sympathy for, you know, people have written a book that is putting the heart, their heart on their outside of their body and are submitted it to these editors. And then this editor has read, you know, hundred manuscripts that month and they they maybe read 20 pages of your book and you're like okay it's not clicking got to get to the next one um that can be a little a little demoralizing in that way and anything you can do to have just an immediate clean grab at the beginning of your manuscript is going to work wonders for you you know as an author you think oh that's kind of disappointing that they like oh the real meat of my book is you know, three chapters in or something like that. But then I think about it and I'm like, well, wait a second. Any reader who's picking it up, yeah. you have to convince them in the same way that you would convince the, like an editor or someone who's choosing to publish your work. And so it, it really benefits you no matter what direction you're going to have your work polished in a way that someone would want to, would want to take your work and say, like, I believe in this because that same process is going to happen with the reader. 
Yeah, that's a really healthy way of looking at that. I like that a lot because I think it is very easy for writers who are trying to um, break into traditional publishing to get a little cynical because, you know, it is a business and um, trying to uh, quantify art in in terms of a business is always going to be a little bit rough. But I think if you look at it uh, as a reader perspective, that that's that's a much more joyful way to to think about it. Well, and with art in general, you know, it's it's not that someone's saying that your art shouldn't exist because it wasn't as marketable. They're just saying, you know, we can't load thousands and thousands of dollars into making this a traditionally published book. And someone, you know, it might be harder for for people to pick up and read it. But there's like a different, you know, there's movies that are made that are more art house films. And sometimes those go on to be really big, but sometimes rare. And then there's other ones that are formulated in a way that they're meant to be big, you know? And so I think there's a wide range and it's not that there's anything wrong with a particular approach. It's just that, well, one of them, you know, sorry, but one of them is going to sell better than the other. <laughs> and so it's, it's just a matter of finding, you know, what works for the type of art that you're trying to produce. If it's something that's a mass scale, like a mass media art, or if it's something that's more intimate and personal. Mm-hmm. So we talked about how you first got into the work. And now I would imagine from that internship to what you're doing now, there's a big difference in um, your both your expertise and what you do on a daily basis. And I would imagine a lot of get, that gets harder and things like this. What would you say has changed about the job since when you first started? Well, publishing is very much um, kind of an apprentice structure where most folks, when they get into publishing, they are starting at an entry level job and going to be working their way up because so much of what you learn is incremental on, on the jobs that you have to do. So, um, it's building that editorial skill, building that sense of organization and just that, that knowledge of the industry that there's just not a lot of great ways outside of publishing to get that kind of experience. But what's most different about my job nowadays is probably, you know, you spend the first four or five rungs on your editorial climb working alone of um, editing your own books, um, talking with your boss. And what I really love about what I do now is having a team. I have, um, this is not an exaggeration. I work with the best team in publishing. It's just the truth. (laughs) Um, I have three other people on my team and that has added such delight to my work of being able to spend time with really creative, talented people who we typically, there's a, you know, a lead editor on a book, but we've structured ourselves in such a way that um, everybody reads every manuscript and then we'll have a meeting afterward to just talk it through and bounce ideas off each other. So you're not only getting one perspective on the manuscript, but um, really this confabulation of smart people with great ideas. Um, and it, t- it takes, um, I think that structure wouldn't work for everyone. Uh, you have to really trust the people you're working with to say, here's an idea, but you know, you're the editor on this book. So if you hate it, you hate it. And that's fine. There's a lot of trust there, but that that's been the, the real delight of um, getting to a level where I'm now managing people. And you mentioned kind of the, the creativity of, of making suggestions and things like this. And you mentioned it again in that description, where do you feel the main creativity stems from an 
editor? Is it in the like making? Because it's like the suggestions that you're making, they have to be creative with the storytelling, but then they also have to be creative in almost like a practical way. Hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about about that. Oh man, where does creativity come from? Just a simple little question. I'm sure <laughs> we can get to the bottom of it in our uh, 30 to 45 minute podcasting time. Uh, that's hard. And I think it's, part of why it's hard is it's really different for everybody. Um, I, you know, again, just looking among the editors on my team, I think there's about half of us who are very intuitive driven. There's just um, some, it's like jazz, it's like um, riffing, it's not something that comes to you immediately, it's something that comes through collaboration. And then there's, I think, half of us who are much more um, structure, craft driven, who read, um, you know, art of screenplay books on the weekends and are really um, intense about, well, let's divide out the five act structure here. And what, yep, we're missing this element from act four, which would make for uh, a more traditional beat at this point. So I think having those two perspectives working hand in hand is is really helpful to get a, a complete creative vision. Yeah. And even from the author standpoint, I feel that in terms like I have so many books that I love on different story structures, but then also it's like because people talk about like the pantsers and the planners, right? And I feel like I'm definitely a mix of both. But it was interesting to me when I first started writing just how I am in life in general, I just assumed that, oh, well, I definitely would be in the planner category and I will map all of this out. But then it came to writing it and I couldn't get it to work because it just felt so stiff. Hmm. So then I started, I did a complete like pantsing, you know, <laughs> uh, draft of a book and it went super well. And then I looked at it and there were elements of the structure in place that I just didn't even know I was putting in. And now I've gotten to the point where I feel like I'm kind of firmly in both camps. Like I know what I should be planning and I know what I should leave up to kind of the creative spur of the writing moment. Um, and so it's interesting that you, that you mentioned there's these kind of, those two things are also at play with the editing process and having that mix of, mix of perspectives on the same book just will really help it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the best advice that I I feel like I can get, give anyone is I, I know it's hard to let go of a manuscript because you always think, well, if I just do one more pass at it, it'll be better, but just get reads, get as many reads as you can get lots of different eyes on, on your work and be open to that feedback. And maybe some of that feedback will be terrible and you'll discard it, but just getting a multitude of perspectives can only make you a stronger writer. Yeah, and I think that's something I'm learning too because I felt the need to, well, this better be really polished so it's like not embarrassing because I like I know I'm mm -hmm. like a first-time writer and it's you don't want to hand that over to someone and they just don't believe that you have like any skill. And so on the one hand, it was really important to me to develop to a certain level to to not have that embarrassment. But then now I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, well, if, if I went to that part of the process earlier, it would have been messy, but then I would have gotten really good ideas that I could have implemented sooner and then worry about the specifics later. So 
there's a lot to think about because I also I also don't know. It's like it's like part of that I feel was good to develop on my own too to to get to a certain point. But it's a complicated thing, I think. Totally. And I feel like traditional publishing has kind of complicated and added to that anxiety because we so often sell the idea of the genius author because they're the brand they're the person that we're promoting so it's in our best interest to be like wow with this beautiful immaculate thing that they created and people just kind of walk away with the idea well yeah the author must have handed in the manuscript exactly as i read it in this book to an editor and then they just published it right which is just so not true and every book you read you'll look at the acknowledgments at the end and you'll see those like 12 20 names of all the people who helped make that book what it is and so like you just shouldn't feel like you need to have written um you know cormac mccarthy before you show anybody because it's not good enough I relate to that, and I I feel that for sure. Um, and kind of going a step back, when you were describing the the room of people that that you're coordinating with and creatively, you mentioned that there's you know some people fall more on the the uh, intuitive side and more on the practical side. Did did you were you explaining that you felt one way or another that you felt more drawn to one aspect of that? I think I've changed a lot over the course of my career that I think I definitely started off as more of an intuitive person and have become more and more of a a structured person as I go on, just because I think reproducing intuition over and over and over consistently is challenging. (laughs) And it's always nice to have that fallback of, I mean, like I said, there's no worse feeling in the world when you read a manuscript and you know it's not working, but you can't put your finger on why. Um, So having those tools to fall back on of like, okay, let's let's go break down the act structure. Let's uh, reanalyze these motivations. And that will help spark that intuition for what's not working. Yeah, and I wonder because that's kind of similar to what I was describing from my personal experience too. And I wonder how much of that is when you're kind of defining your own process and voice and what sorts of things you're drawn to, uh, at least from the writing perspective. That does require all this a more focus on the intuition side. But like you said, it's like okay, well, I don't want to write you know one book. I want to write like dozens of books over the course of my life. So, mm-hmm. so for example, the the first book that I wrote, it took me like three years of figuring out how to be writing it to get it to work. And then this last book that I wrote, I wrote in less than a year. And then this year, I'm hoping to write two books. So it's like, I'm trying to become more efficient. And I'm finding that if I rely on the structures that I that I have found to be useful, that, that I found my work naturally mirroring anyway, that is one of the many tools to use in order to increase my pace without kind of losing the quality aspect. And to kind of avoid burnout where you're not forcing yeah. yourself to do something unnatural that actually isn't that enjoyable and that you're not going to want to stick to. That makes a lot of sense. And so for the people who are authors, but uh, maybe even inspiring editors as well, and just creatives in general who want to do work that's creative and in a way creative and challenging, what do you recommend for people if they're maybe doing something less creative with their work now and either want to do something on the side or just get into something like this, what are some of the first steps that someone should do to start trying something like that out? 
Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the American myth, right? That you need to find your identity and your passion and everything about you in your job. And I think if the thing that pays the bills isn't fulfilling you creatively, that is okay. And the, the thing that you do need to do is to make sure that you have the energy after you do the thing that pays the bills to follow your passions, um, that compartmentalizing, um, the amount of energy that you have so that you aren't wasting it on, on things that aren't fulfilling you is it's hard to do because it's hard to prioritize things, especially when you get into a groove, into a pattern, but taking that step back and saying, is this fulfill me? And if not, why am I spending so much energy on it is going to give you that capacity to then spend it on the things that are fulfilling you. Yeah. I like that perspective because it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily that you're, you know, like people think, oh, I have the full-time job. I can't write a book or I have a full-time job. I can't start painting or something like that. I like this perspective that you're bringing up and, and someone brought it up in a different context than this on the show before, but it's that looking at your life as a whole and mm. seeing that how, you know, how much time is spent or even wasted on something like that you're mentioning isn't fulfilling or, you know, am I just, you know, if I took all of my mindless scrolling on Instagram and then applied that to a novel, like how long would it take, you know, that kind of thing uh, in trying to find a balance in your life so that you can pursue something creative that you might've always wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I think the most valuable currency we have is our time. And if you really stop to take a step back and sort of budget, <laughs> look at where you're spending that time um, and see if, if, if it could be going somewhere else instead. Well, thanks so much, Elizabeth. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was great to learn more about the editing process and your perspective on all these things. Um, I really appreciate it. What are some ways that people can um, follow your work or if there's like books that you've worked on that, that you want to recommend for people to read? Well, if folks are interested in um, reading a licensed book, maybe they, they've never checked one out before. I think uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, a really nice place to start is a book called From a Certain Point of View. It's a short story collection that is basically the entire plot of A New Hope, but all from the perspective of secondary characters. And I got to work with 40 different authors on that collection. So it's just this beautiful potpourri of um, so many different perspectives on Star Wars, both from the character point of view and from the author point of view. I, I really, really love that book. And you cannot contact me. Um, the internet was a mistake and uh, no one should be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I have read from a certain point of view and it's fantastic. And it's not oh, only that first book, but you guys put out, um, is Return of the Jedi out as well? I know at least Empire Strikes Back is out. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back uh, came out in 2020 and we will probably, I mean, it hasn't been announced, but you know, wink, wink, there's probably going to be a Return of the Jedi one in 2023. I really hope they do the prequels next. Uh, that would be really cool, too. That would be pretty cool. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. Uh, it was just great catching up with you and, and talking about all these things. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. If you enjoyed the discussion about writing and making good use of your time, check out episode 10 with author K.A. Emmons. She has some great tips on how to find your focus and live life with more intention. If you enjoy this podcast, please share with a friend and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
Those two things really help the show grow. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, email me at john at causeofcraft.com. That's j-o-n at causeofcraft.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.